This week in retail news, many U.S. malls are rolling out some interesting experiences to get shoppers indoors. Meanwhile, industry experts are bracing for what they're calling the shipageddon. And this just in, flexible payment services are on the rise, but why aren't more luxury brands hopping on board? We've got the scoop and more. On today's episode, it's Monday, October 26, and this is your Retail Rundown. You know it's going to be a good episode when we're joined by not one, but two of our Rethink Retail advisors, Carol Speakerman and Ricardo Belmar. Carol Speakerman is an expert on global retail trajectories and transmedia brand platforms. She's an author and contributor to leading media outlets such as NPR, Reuters, and Forbes. Ricardo is a top 10 influencer at NRF's annual event, a featured Retail Wire Brain Trust member and former association director for ICX. He was named social media mayor by RIS News and is a contributor for Retail Customer Experience. Carol, Ricardo, it's great to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk about the holiday shopping season. Retailers are preparing for an unusual one. Delivery services are bracing for what the New York Times and Wall Street Journal are referring to as shipageddon. And side note, shout out to our friends at the Retail Geek podcast for coining that term. Major delivery carriers such as UPS and FedEx told some of their shippers they've already reached most of their capacity. Meanwhile, industry analysts are predicting that holiday shoppers could see delivery delays up to two weeks or more. And some retailers are already experiencing major delays. In the U.S. apparel, retailer H&M is seeing processing times up to 14 business days, while reviews on Trustpilot revealed some customers are waiting up to four weeks for their parcels to arrive. Ricardo, I will pass this one to you first, especially because you just had a viral LinkedIn post about it. Is there anything retailers can do to help alleviate or prepare for the stress put on shipping carriers this season? Yeah, so this is really becoming a hot topic. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, how did we get there, right? Like, like everything else in 2020 that's been completely thrown off kilter, we've got the word from the shippers like FedEx, UPS, right? Even though they're increasing their capacity, I think they've claimed something like 10%. I saw a recent announcements UPS has hired another 100,000 people. FedEx has a 70,000 person hiring surge to try to grow capacity. But really what's happened, right, is we've had what was used to be a 15% annual increase in e-commerce. Now is suddenly in the 30 to 40% range, depending on which quarter you, you look at for 2020, thanks to the pandemic. And then if you think about the usual holiday shopping surge on top of that, that's where we hear from analysts that there's anywhere from five to seven million packages at risk. So it's kind of like this funnel-shaped constraint where you've got so much more going in than the capacity you had to get out the other end without experiencing a lot of delay. So I kind of look at this as maybe a handful of different types or buckets of retail players and, and what they can do. So, you know, the first, maybe most obvious one that if you're a retailer whose name starts with Amazon and you're freshly coming off of Prime Day, you're probably thinking you're somewhat immune to this because you've got your own built out logistics empire. And more importantly, you, you've got an ability to somewhat dynamically adjust your distribution and fulfillment capacity, at least at more, more rapidly maybe than the rest of the industry. So you're probably feel better about it. But I will say that even during Prime Day, anecdotally, I heard it from a lot of people I talked to that they saw a lot of varying shipping times during the two Prime Days where they'd see an item, particularly on the second day, 
where it would suddenly not look like it was true one or two day prime shipping that it was going to take longer. But then they ended up receiving things um, earlier than expected. So it seemed like even Amazon was trying to temper expectations there. Then you've got you know, another group that I'll talk to that's sort of the typical omni-channel retailer, whether you love or hate that term, but I think it works in this case because we're talking really about mass merchandisers, bink box guys. This is where you know you look at folks like Target and Best Buy, who this year would probably offer the masterclass and how to execute good omni-channel retailing from a consumer perspective. But they've really turned stores into this kind of magical release valve thanks to buy online, pick up in store and turning on curbside pickup and like Target, for example, really relying on ship from store to distribute inventory and then kind of optimize that. So if you're in that bucket, you're just going to keep doing more of the same. And you're hoping that you can spread the wealth, so to speak, so that rather than trying to really push everything into FedEx or UPS, you may be spinning up some other 3PLs to, to help with this and some other carriers. But you're going to try to rely a lot on pushing people to take advantage of that in-store pickup and curbside so you can just avoid shipping altogether. Then the next group I talk about is really more of the, your typical online pure plays where you either don't have stores or you don't have a large store network. So you really are normally pretty dependent on UPS and FedEx. And in a normal year, you would probably be talking to them already to try to lock in some extra capacity. And I've again anecdotally heard from uh, multiple retailers now who are saying that the response they're getting is, we don't want your extra volume this year. You know, Thank you very much. So where does that leave you? So again, mm-hmm. you, you kind of have to go to plan B, if you will, and start looking at other 3PLs and other providers to see where else can you take this extra volume that you've got and so I think there's an opportunity there for some innovation. I, I, there are some new 3PLs and 4PLs providers out there, folks like Shapiro, ShipBob, who are trying to manage a sort of a network of partners for distribution and fulfillment to try to spread this out. And so if you're if stuck in this mode where you can't get that extra capacity from your primary shipper, whether it's UPS or FedEx, you're, you're going to want to start talking to some of these other organizations and see if that helps. Then I think the last group, which maybe is the most interesting one to talk about, are more of the, the smaller, medium-sized retailers, indie retailers. These could be folks who primarily sell on a Shopify platform, or maybe they're eBay sellers or Etsy. You know, what do you do if, if you're in this group? Most likely, you've been relying on the post office as your primary means of shipping. And I see a lot of debate on this as to whether people think that if that's your primary shipper, you're either worse or better off than if you rely on FedEx or UPS. So I think maybe there's an ongoing debate there. I tend to be in the camp that I think you're more in need of having a backup plan if US post office is going to be your primary shipment means. So again, more reasons to branch out and try to find other fulfillment networks. Now, if you're on the Shopify's platform, you, you hopefully have been applying to use Shopify's fulfillment network, which really acts kind of like as a overarching 4PL and managing other distribution networks because they don't really have the, the distribution center assets there. But I think that's the plan that this group of retailers is going to have to pursue. You don't have the ability to rely on a curbside pickup option or an insert pickup. You have to ship things. So you need to branch out and rely on as many different fulfillment networks as you can to get your products out there. Where does that leave you then? 
is things we've been hearing a lot of people talking about is convincing your customers to shop early. So of course, we were all just you know before we were recording talking to each other, have you started your holiday shopping? And more and more people that I've asked that to around me are saying, no, I haven't really thought about it yet. Or someone will say, well, it's only October. And so because that's counter to what retailers, especially this year, want. And it's not necessarily a new thing. I think every year, you know, we all see and comment how, oh, oh, look, I walked into my favorite store and I already see the holiday decorations out and it's not even Halloween. And, and people had a tendency to shake their hands at why is this coming earlier and earlier? Well, now there's an incentive, at least from the retailer's point of view, and it may require some education. I've even seen examples on Twitter of people posting letters from the CEO of a retailer to their customers in practical sense, almost begging them to please shop early mm-hmm. and, and warning them that, that well. if you don't shop early, you, you may regret it. Absolutely. Good points, Ricardo. I like how you broke it down, by the way, based on kind of what segment of retailer you are and the customers you're serving. Carol, have you been hearing things that Ricardo touched on about partnering with 3PLs and thinking about getting your customers shopping early? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's obviously a really intentional effort on the part of retailers. You know, Amazon definitely fired the starting gun early on the promotions and events this year. But what's different is that several other major retailers decided to ride in their wake and join them in starting those promotions early. So I think that is going to help spread things out and alleviate some of the tension, which is not to say this isn't going to be a stress test for everybody. But, you know, retailers too, I think, and it's sort of echoing what Ricardo was saying, retailers are learning that they have to take a portfolio approach to this, that they can't just pick a couple of options and hope they work out. So you see retailers, even like 7-Eleven, forging multiple partnerships with third parties like Grubhub and Instacart and Uber. So I think this portfolio approach is one positive step as well to where they'll have more places to move and groove depending on how things shake out. But really, I boil it down to three main elements that I think the retailers need to take into consideration. And the first is awareness. As retail watchers, we're very aware of what retailers are doing because we look at it every day. But a lot of times shoppers are confused. They don't know which options retailers are offering. And if a shopper doesn't know that you have a partnership with Instacart, for example, you might as well not have it. So you need to be able to market those capabilities and make sure that the awareness is there. And then secondly, transparency. More than anything, retailers have to be really clear and honest about what they can and can't accomplish, You know, both from a digital sort of algorithmic driven perspective to where you are literally given a delivery date and, the, and it sticks or you know whatever that looks like. But the disappointment factor increases exponentially when shoppers feel like they were hit without warning. So it's one thing to disappoint a customer, but it's another to, you know, sort of break up a lot of promises. And I think that's something that retailers are going to have to really think about is transparency and notifications. And then that ties into the third aspect, which is agility. The term that Ricardo used, I think is really appropriate here, dynamic adjustment. So as things start off early, the positive possibility there is that retailers will have more runway to react and to steer customers into other options. So retailers have tons of options at their disposal, but the clock is going to continue to be ticking. So they need to have that time to direct customers to alternatives and in a very timely manner, you know, before the clock runs out. So I think retailers' ability to steer customers to those curbside and in-store pickup options, where essentially the shopper is doing the last mile delivery themselves, 
are a much better option, but that takes a lot of agility and they're going to have to be able to turn on a dime and say, no, you're not going to be able to get this option, but let me take you over here where this can happen. But you look at retailers like Target, as Ricardo mentioned, that have really been focusing on this and not just making it an accidental you know, make it up as you go along proposition. I mean, their pickup and drive up services alone this year have grown more than $1.6 billion with a B. So that's a huge shift. And it also exemplifies, I think, their ability to steer customers into these options that make more sense and that take pressure off of the overall system. Mm -hmm. Carol, I love the three points you made. I think awareness, transparency, and agility. Yes. And I wanted to touch on transparency because you said it's super important, especially with the holidays, to not disappoint your consumer. And I was speaking with someone just yesterday who said they're considering digital insurance in a sense. So if you know that customers' items are delayed, sending them something that says, hey, we know it's delayed, we're sorry. Here is a virtual gift you can give to the person and then and here's a discount or something that offsets that disappointment. Do you guys agree with, with that approach? Yeah, I think it shows goodwill and good intentions. And anything in that direction is positive. If anything, somewhat over-communicating and continuing to present options. I think that's what keeps bubbling up in this whole conversation is the need for diversified portfolio approaches and then the need to present options. And then that way the shopper feels like they're in control. It isn't pass or fail, yes or no, or it made it or it didn't. It's here are the options that we have. And then that kind of goes back to the awareness and the agility pieces that we just talked about. You have to make sure that they're aware what their options are. And the overarching goal is to keep those customers playing on your platform and not hopping off to somebody else's. I have to Agree. I think that over communicating is definitely the key on this one. It's really like a moment where retailers need to kind of take a page out of their crisis management playbook and treat this like even as it were a bigger crisis than they may or may not experience. You know, and consumers want to know what's happening. So if you do have the ability to know that something is going to be delayed or whatever stage it's in, you absolutely need to over communicate it to the customer to make them feel like you're on top of things. The last thing you want your customers to think is that. Things are out of control on your end because that's going to cause them to not want to shop with you in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the good news is that so many of these convenience options that retailers were cooking up before COVID, drive through curbside, home delivery, site to store, now those have translated into becoming safety enablers. So they became really relevant mm-hmm. as COVID cranked up. Well, now we have a third aspect of that, which is speed. So the same capabilities now address three separate motivations, convenience, safety, and potentially now speed if retailers play it right. And they, again, have that runway and that agility to steer customers into those options that work and that still get something to them on time, you know, before the clock runs out. All right. Great comments, Carol and Ricardo. Moving on to our next hot topic. But first, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit more about VTEX. VTEX is the first and only global, fully integrated end-to-end commerce solution with native marketplace and OMS capabilities. VTEX helps companies in retail, manufacturing, wholesale, groceries, consumer packaged goods, and other verticals to sell more, operate more efficiently, scale seamlessly, and deliver a remarkable customer experience. Find out more about what VTEX can do for your business at www.vtex.com. 
there's been a lot of news around this lately. It's Buy Now, Pay Later services in retail. So PayPal is launching its Buy Now, Pay Later service in the UK, and that lets shoppers finance their purchases over three interest-free monthly installments. And this launch comes hot off the heels of their US rollout of its Pay In 4 product just last month. PayPal's new finance option mirrors point-of-sale finance providers such as Klarna, Afterpay, and QuadPay. Afterpay announced earlier this month that its in-store offering is now available nationwide, and the first retailers offering Afterpay in the U.S. include Forever 21, Finish Line, JD Sports, Levi's, Skechers, as well as select few DSW stores. By now, pay later providers have seen tremendous growth in recent months as shoppers move online. Most of the leading BNPL providers have payment options embedded on retailers' websites. Carol, I'll pass this to you first with flexible payment use on the rise. Why do you think maybe luxury brands have been slower to catch on? Wouldn't an installment plan help lower the barrier to entry? Well, you know, it's a big trend right now. There are a lot of players coming on the scene to take advantage of it. But right now, yeah, buy now, pay later has mostly had traction in the discount in the middle tier of retail. But you have to know that's where most of the business is done. So it makes a lot of sense. So I would say that the luxury market is maybe nascent, but not necessarily reluctant. I don't know that I would make that call yet to say that they're somehow actively resisting it. I think that luxury players are definitely going to get on board if only because the payment platforms themselves are going to make sure that they do. You know, in so many cases, it's the platforms that drive the growth and the adoption. And you look at a company like Afterpay, for example, they're definitely aware of the opportunity and already starting to make inroads. They just steal the deal you may have seen to have naming rights for Fashion Week in Australia. So now it's, you know, Afterpay Fashion Week <laughs> in Australia. Wow. And they're not just changing the name. <laughs> they're actually touting their involvement as a way for opportunities to recoup their investments in participating in the show and also facilitating that see now, buy now movement that's been at work in fashion for a while. So these companies are aware of the opportunity and their awareness and their thirst to get into those markets, I think, is going to drive the adoption. So I think the story is evolving. Luxury is going to come along slowly, but eventually, very much like luxury brands did in the digital space. They were slow to get there, with the exception of perhaps Burberry and a couple of others. But they got on board, and a lot of it was driven by the platforms, the digital platforms that welcomed them in and made it easy for them to do. So I think the same dynamic will be at work here. That's really interesting that Afterpay is basically sponsoring or owning the rights for Fashion Week Australia. I wouldn't have guessed that. It's kind of like how McDonald's will sponsor sports teams here, right, on their jerseys. So, But it sure, uh, certainly speaks to their intent, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Ricardo, what are your thoughts on buy now, pay later on the rise? I kind of take the view that uh, in many new things that develop as a trend like this, luxury brands tend to be a little more cautious and maybe take a little bit more of a wait and see attitude, partly because in everything that true luxury brands do, they want to measure what's the impact of their brand. You know, what is that going to say about them if they participate, if they take advantage of something and if they join a trend? So if you look at something like the buy now, pay later, although usage is definitely increasing and you see plenty of reports of all of these companies that are engaging in, in this and how successful they're becoming and getting retailers to buy on. But it's also brought along with it, like, like a lot of these the things in, in the financial areas always do, is questions about regulations and you know, are there too many risks in people using these services? And even if it turns out that the answers aren't all that terrible uh, at the end of the day, when you get to it, because those questions get raised, I think that causes 
luxury brands to pause a bit in their thinking and say, well, if there is a perceived risk that people who use these services get into financial problems, that it attracts regulators, do we want to be associated with that? So I think those are valid questions that luxury brands will ask themselves. I think a second perspective they probably have, I certainly see many brands taking this view, what makes them a luxury brand? In many cases, depending on the products in the category we're talking about, part of the equation there is exclusivity. So if the purpose of these buy now, pay later payment methods is to expand the reach of who can own and buy these products, that actually may or may not be part of the luxury brand's plan if that doesn't align to the customer type and demographic that they're targeting. So I think there are a lot of brand-related questions for luxury companies as to why or why not they might want to adopt these buy now, pay later strategies. Mm -hmm. And I've interviewed a lot of luxury retailers for the series I'm doing, and they all come back to that. What will it do to our brand? It's impressive how much they bring up the brand compared to other retailers. Yeah. At the end of the day, the luxury brands are, are just that. They're all about the brand. And so they have to be very protective or they lose that the luster of being a luxury brand if they don't protect it. What I find interesting, though, is in a real positive development in this space is that the focus on digital. You know, you look at Walmart, that has once again this year, it always becomes news every year, how much they back off of or go back into layaway. This year, they're backing off of layaway, not entirely. They're just being more surgical about which stores are going to offer it. But I think that that, you know, this whole conversation about how customers want to pay and in which tiers is getting very interesting. But the big development is that Afterpay and all of these companies their digital capabilities. I mean, they're digital first companies versus focusing on walking into a store, writing a check and making a physical payment, sort of that old school way of doing things. And when you think about the travel bans and the COVID challenges that tend to drive the travel that tends to drive the luxury market, the fact that so many of these platforms are digitally based is positive for luxury brands because it allows them to capture sales even when that travel that used to drive their store traffic isn't happening. It's a little convoluted, but I think luxury brands are certainly going to see the advantages to the exposure and the scale that they're able to achieve through these platforms that has been curtailed through COVID as fewer customers visit their stores. So the digital aspect is really going to be key to driving those partnerships. Mm -hmm. It's just like many people would say luxury brands would never use Amazon as a platform, right? And now we're seeing Oscar de la Renta and a few others doing that. So never say never. That's right. Never say never. That's right. (laughs) Eventually you have to go where your customer is. It's never a bad time for some good news. So let's hear what's happening. In an effort to spread holiday cheer, Lowe's is offering free Christmas tree delivery for the first time ever. Starting October 30th, customers can order fresh cut trees and wreaths online and have them delivered within two to five days. Delivery is free as long as the order is $45 or more. To keep shoppers safe, Target has put in place additional measures to minimize event day shopping behavior. The Minneapolis-based retailer announced last week it will only be open its normal hours on Black Friday. Shoppers will be able to visit Target.com line to check and see if there is a line outside of the store and then reserve a spot. 
Well, let's talk about malls, 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 malls. So people are beginning their holiday shopping earlier this season, but the traditional malls are trying just about everything to get shoppers through their doors. This is pretty interesting. So for example, the U.S. Minnesota-based Maplewood Mall is trying to attract shoppers with their new petting zoo and augmented reality visits with Santa Claus. Another mall replaced its JCPenney with an indoor soccer field. But despite best efforts, only 45% of consumers, at least in the U.S., plan to go to a mall this season. That's down from 64% last year. So that's according to the International Council of Shopping Centers survey released this month. Some malls like the Mall of America and indoor shopping centers have introduced curbside pickups for tenants to share. Interestingly, though, globally speaking, an Oracle survey released today predicts that 58% of consumers will spend the same or more on holiday shopping than they did last year. So that's actually a bit positive. Ricardo, I'll pass this to you. What do you think about the prediction that fewer than 50% of shoppers will visit a mall this shopping season? One of the things I find interesting on this topic, and it kind of relates to our our earlier one about Shipageddon. So malls are really in an interesting position uh, along with the mall-based retailers that are in there. And what's fascinating to me with all of these surveys, you know, even just in the couple that you referenced just now, you know, while one's more positive, one's more negative, taken together, they're a little bit contradictory, right? So I think one of the things that happens here is when we look at surveys that are trying to gauge shopper intent, but they're asking consumers, what do you plan to do? People always plan to do certain things, but they don't always have the chance to execute on those plans. And, and so I think that you kind of have to take all those kinds of surveys with a grain of salt because they're not that accurate, I, I think, oftentimes in predicting. So if you were to ask me, you know, well, do I expect fewer people to go to malls? I'm inclined to say yes, partly because we we still see this when you look at measured foot traffic across brick and mortar retailer. In most stores, the foot traffic compared to last year is still down. Granted, we're going into a holiday shopping season, but if you accept that that trend is going to continue, and if you accept that that trend is because we're in the middle of a pandemic, then it to me, that says that people may aspire to go to the mall to some extent because maybe they want to go do more shopping, but will they at the end of the day? Will they either because they don't feel safe doing it or because they're worried that too many people are going to be there and they don't want to be in a crowd? I think it causes more people to hold back. So they may respond to survey saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to a mall, but I think they're going to hold back to that. So of course, then malls are going to do the kinds of things you describe, whether you know make it more of a destination that people want to be in besides the desire to go shopping. It's commendable. I think for mall owners are starting to think more creatively for this. I think if it were a normal year, all of those techniques and methods would actually serve to increase foot traffic to the mall. But I think at this point, I, I just don't know that making the mall a non-shopping destination is going to help you going into the holiday season to try to help those retailers increase sales. What should malls be doing to help their retailers? They should be doing everything they can to help those mall retailers with in-store pickup, curbside pickup, all these things that help the retailer leverage the store footprint that more standalone retailers and and all of our essential retailers throughout the year have benefited from during the pandemic. These are all the things that we know consumers want now. Everyone has felt the convenience factor behind those, and they want to see more of it. In fact, one thing that kind of surprises me, we don't hear malls talking about very much, 
you know, with what we just talked about earlier with Chip again and the need for better distribution and fulfillment options, we hear this constant string of rumors of mall owners wanting to sell their vacant spots to Amazon so that Amazon can build fulfillment centers there. Why aren't malls talking to other retailers about this? Why aren't we hearing more mall owners trying to come up with new plans to help the existing tenants they have with more distribution and fulfillment capability in those same vacant spots they have that they know they're not going to fill this season? You're not going to expect to see new stores pop up there. So make use of the space and offer it to your existing retailers so that they in turn can help fulfill customer orders. I think that's where mall owners should probably be more so directing their efforts to to really make a difference this season. Yeah, and you know, I can pl- I completely agree with what Ricardo just said because so many of these tactics that they're trying to deploy right now are really antithetical to the shift in consumer behavior which is from browsing to intentional shopping. And you can't force shoppers to want to browse when, you know, they're making plans and saying, how do I go to as few stores as possible and how do I get in and get out? So that prioritization, as Ricardo alluded to, I think is important for retailers to realistically say, what do shoppers want and how can we facilitate that rather than how can we run counter to that and try to force them into behaviors that they don't want to have. But the planning piece of it also too, you know, talking about those best laid plans, it really ties back into what we talked about a second ago with agility. Retailers, if they're agile enough and they see these trends taking shape, then they'll have the ability, hopefully, to create promotions that are store-based to mitigate any issues that they've been having on the digital space. It's a tall order, but I think that agility piece really comes in to where, where retailers can say, here's how we're going to steer shoppers into the stores, maybe at the 11th hour, and it may even run counter to what, to Ricardo's point, to the plans, the best laid plans that they had made in terms of how they were going to shop. Maybe they had plans to shop digitally, but the retailer was transparent about their inability to deliver. And then therefore they shift their plans to physically go into a store. So I think those types of shifts and the agility of retailers to react to them and to expect and anticipate them is going to be a really big success factor for the holiday shopping season. Yeah. I think if there's one one lesson that everyone from the mall owners to the retailers should take away from 2020 is agility. Yep. Absolutely. And I love the idea to help out retailers, mall-based retailers, with using that space for fulfillment. I don't know why we don't see more of that. Ricardo and Carol, it was great having you on the show. Before we log off, Carol, would you tell our listeners where they can find your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. It's produced in partnership with MarketScale. So you can see the podcast on MarketScale.com in their retail section. Also, I have a channel on my website at SpeakermanRetail.com under insights and podcast. And that's where you can check out all the episodes. In fact, I just wrapped up my eight mistakes suppliers can't make series, which is very much geared towards supplier best practices, suppliers of all stripes, solutions, services, brands, products, and moving on to some really great interviews coming up. So thanks for asking about it. Absolutely. And that sounds like something everyone who listens to this podcast should also check out. So thank you so much, our advisors, Carol Speakerman and Ricardo Belmar for joining the show today. It was a pleasure to be with you, Julia and Ricardo. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Carol. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.